Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down, is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome, everyone, to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. My friends, today I have the pleasure of introducing you to two incredible award-winning neurologists. They're a husband and wife, incredible duo, and they're just really, really kind and very interesting people to actually speak to. I had an absolute blast speaking with these these two, and I know that you guys are going to learn so much and gain a lot of wisdom and knowledge regarding our brain, how to take care of, how to take care of it um, more, and so much more. Their names are Dr. Dean and Dr. Aisha Shirzai. Now, for those of you that need to know more about them, Dr. Dean Shirzai is a behavioral neurologist, neuroscientist whose entire life has been dedicated to behavioral change models at the community and population level. He has revolutionized the world of public health nationally and internationally. Dean finished his medical and neurology residencies at Georgetown University with a subsequent fellowship in neurodegenerative diseases at the National Institutes of Health, followed by a second fellowship at, at in dementia and geriatrics at the University of California, San Diego. He holds two master's degrees in advanced sciences at UCSD and in lifestyle epidemiology from Loma Linda University. His wife, Dr. Aisha, finished two residencies at Loma Linda University, uh, Preventative Medicine and Neurology. She holds a Master's in Advanced Sciences from UCSD. Subsequent to completing her residency, Dr. Aisha completed a fellowship in Vascular Neurology from Columbia University. And she is currently enrolled to finish a PhD in Women's Leadership believe it or not, uh, knowing the importance of empowering her patients and their communities. Dr. Aisha completed an extensive culinary training program as well, and she now teaches large populations how to make tasty, easy, and healthy food 
for their brain health. And today's conversation is quite wide ranging about our brain, why uh, it is so, so crucial to look after our brain, what foods can help. And we also talk about Alzheimer's, what causes Alzheimer's in the first place. Can we prevent it? Can we find a solution to it? even in the future as well, and so much more. I know that you guys are really going to love these two, and they're a lot of fun. (laughs) They honestly are. They have two books, which I'll make sure both books are available in the links below for you guys to get. The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution is a brilliant science and action-oriented cookbook for preventing Alzheimer's disease. So I'll make sure that you guys know where to get that as well. And uh, there is so much more incredible information in this interview. So I won't delay you guys from listening any further. But speaking of books, my very first one, uh, The Path of an Eagle is now available for pre-order. I hope that you guys can go and get a copy of that link for, for where you can get it will be available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box and learn more about the importance of our brain and how we can take better care of it with doctors Aisha and Dean Shazai. That's very kind of you to have us here. Thank you so much. We're excited. I'm excited to have you both here. We have quite a few mutual friends in in this field, which I, I honestly appreciate. I was listening to you your conversation with as more of a compilation conversation of um, Simon Hill and uh, you guys just love listening to all the the wisdom and the advice that you guys pour out there for everyone. And one of the areas that I do want to get into later on is in strokes. Um, and my grandfather actually died of a brainstem stroke. So I want to touch on that for my audience too. But before we dive into all areas of the brain and nutrition, that sort of thing, my very first question for you both is what does success look like for you? Who wants to go first? Oh, boy. You go first. Yeah. Uh, Success looks like us bringing paradigm shift in the world of healthcare, Uh, bringing change in, in healthcare, bringing change, period change period change is everything yeah we are the foundation of change as human beings we are living in a world where change is looked upon as a negative thing the very machine that makes us who we are which is the frontal lobe its singular function is change Uh, i'm actually going outside of neuro but but it's okay (laughs) Change, 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 managing change, understanding change, pushing change, evolving towards change, living change, being change. That's who we are. And so success to me looks like if we can even bring humanity the idea that change is not bad. In fact, it is the essence of who we are then that's success to me. Absolutely. I'll pass it on to you. Wow. It's difficult to top that. But I think success to me personally is not a milestone or a mm-hmm. specific goal. I think success is defined as finding joy in the process of movement and in the process of enjoying the journey. Um, as a mother of two teenage children, I think that's one of the 
most humbling things that I've learned in life, whether it's in the realm of medicine or, you know, beyond medicine and, uh, you know, humanity is understanding that the journey of curiosity, of finding out things, of experiencing and being good at that and being aware of it and mindful of it, that to me is success. So hopefully if people can actually understand that journey very well and accept it and be in the moment and feel the discomfort and be comfortable with that discomfort, that's success. I love both of those answers. I wanted to touch on Dean's for a moment in regards to change. I mean, you're in the forefront of changing the way people look at neurology, the brain, brain health, that sort of thing. I think you both are really. I wanted to ask you both this question. How often does our brain change in both a positive or a negative way? If that is a too broad of a question, I can nail it down for you if you like. No, it's, it's beautiful. Our brain is an ever-changing living organism. As much as we, we keep using that concept of a living organism to stand for change, there's no part of our body that changes more and more constantly and more diversely and more profoundly and more powerfully than our brain, for good and for bad. And the, the direction and the vector matters and it's in our control. Both whether it's as far as building it, as far as its foundations, as far as what makes it, as far as health of it, yeah. and as far as its capacity, cognitive capacity. We can maintain ourselves in a, in a closed loop of comfort, as I should put it, or we can break through those boundaries and open up the infinity of this incredible brain. Hold on. This, we, we have props in this house. I love it. <laughs> this this thing is unbelievable. And its major capacity is ability to change and to change in its environment. I mean, for millennia, we survived and we evolved by just having intrinsic characteristics and by accident, whether we survived. But at the moment, we developed a frontal lobe and it's a little more than that. We took control of that survivorship by the ability to change. So for the audience that is listening and not watching, Dean is actually holding a model of the brain and he's pointing to it's the It's a real parts. human brain that I just took. No, I'm just kidding. It's a, it's a plastic model. Yeah. So, so that's, it's a changing, it's a beautifully, let me give you, it's 87 billion neurons. Uh, but each of those neurons, so it's 87 billion neurons, and then they have these supporting cells called glia, microglia, and, you know, the astrocytes. And these actually outnumber the neurons by tenfold. Then each of these neurons can make a couple of connections or as many as 30,000 connections. And those numbers vary. Why do they vary? They vary because you force them to vary because of your thinking, you're challenging yourself, you're pushing yourself, you're, you're pushing yourself beyond your comfort. Do that math. That math is yeah. bewildering. 87 billion times 30,000. Let's say if it's not even 30,000 by 5,000, that's in quadrillions. I mean, that's the power of the brain and its capacity to change. And we narrow it down to watching Kardashians. 
<laughs> I mean, I like Kardashians. Yeah. I do. I do. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> they're, they're, I do. But I'm saying that that's the capacity we have. It's right. it's remarkable. It's beautiful. How how much does the size of our brain really matter, or does it matter at all? Because and and when we're talking about the amount of neurons that we have, does that also differ from person to person? It's a great question. So the size of the brain, um, it doesn't matter. And when you look at the human brain and compare it to other animals, there are animals that have bigger brains. You know, a, yeah. um, a whale has an enormous brain. An elephant has a bigger brain than us. Um, but I think it's the proportion of some parts of the brain that are bigger than the rest that's more important in human beings. And also the, the uh, you know, the salsa and the gyri, which are the invaginations in the brain that increases the surface or the, the connections between different cells that matters more. We are born with a set number of cells. And within the first five years of our life, there is a process of programmed cell death where, you know, certain cells actually completely die because they don't have any function uh, anymore. And we're left with 87 billion neurons. And obviously that number is determined by our environment, by our nutrition, by the kind of, you know, um, you know, stressors that we are exposed to. Mm. Um, so we basically live with that set number of brain cells throughout our life. That is called the brain reserve. And then what we do with it, whether, you know, what kind of information we're exposed to and what kind of lifestyle we choose, that determines the connectivity between the cells. And, you know, being neurologists and scientists, Dean and I have looked into developing more of these brain cell connections. Um, you know, the concept of neuroplasticity has been discussed um, uh, a lot in, in the past. And it essentially points to the fact that Throughout our life, we have the capacity to increase those brain cell connections, and that translates into better processing, better memory, better thinking process, and overall better brain function. So if we were to have a damaged neuron, say, for example, can we regenerate new ones? Is that ever possible? Or we yeah. stuck with the 87 mil billion? Uh, well, no, you, you can go down from 87 billion and you can't go up from 87, but if you go down, you can regenerate some new neurons. But the number of new neurons is not as important as the number of new connections. Because, I mean, if one neuron is replaced, but what if you have 10 neurons that are already there and instead of making a couple of couple connections, they make 30,000 connections each. Yep. That's that's the capacity. The connectivity is more important than the regeneration of individual neurons. And that's tremendous power um, that we should uh, all acknowledge. When we're speaking about the power of our brain and the, and the mind, for example, is there, this is the first question I have for you, is there a distinct difference between uh, the mind versus the brain? That's the first question. And the second question is, when we are talking about its power, just how powerful is it actually? Yeah. So the mind is a product of the brain. I mean, this is a controversial, it should, in 21st century, I don't think it's that controversial. Yeah, <clears throat> most, most scientists have come to, it's a product of the brain. There's nothing outside, it's not outside of the brain. I mean, as much as we want to make ourselves feel like, okay, no, we have something that's, a, no, it's in product, but it's a unique product. Now that product is mind or consciousness or whatever continuum thereof you want to you call it. 
it's a very difficult thing to put your hands around. And, and this is this is actually why we came to this field. That's why I I wanted to study consciousness and 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 the idea of the mind, um, the mind theory and all of this stuff. And and you see it in two places. Once you see the whole transition in ICUs, when patients who are in coma and they come out of coma and that whole journey. And nowadays you can actually see what they're thinking to some extent while they're in coma with these incredible machines and EEGs and now with AI being able to read patterns and all that, it's remarkable. And the other place you see it is when a person is going through dementia, this mm-hmm. transition as they're losing parts of themselves, they're losing parts and islands of consciousness, I call it. As they're losing their islands of consciousness, ultimately they lose the final island, which is the island of the self. Um, that The mind is that thing that defines yourself. Yeah. It varies throughout life. I've, I've known patients who've developed vascular cognitive inc- decline and they, they, slow, they get slower and slower and slower. And you can see them. You can see their videos when they were in their 40s, very sharp talking quickly. And then they're older and it's much slower. And that's vascular disease that slowly crept, crept in. But to them, they're the same person. Yeah. They don't feel different. Their sense of self is the same. Because their sense of self is the totality of them recognizing themselves in space and across time. Yeah. And, and we don't know any better than, than just that. And so that comes as a product of the brain. And it's not as complex and as massive as we think. We'll get to the massive part in a second. But that sense of self, that, that consciousness, is not as incredible as people think it is. It's just me recognizing that this physicality is here in this moment and recognizing some connectivity to the past and even that's a cloud and some connectivity to the present and the future and that's a cloud i'm getting a little too uh wonky here but we'll get back but capacity capacity is difficult to define what capacity of what capacity of memory well short-term memory we have seven bits now they say four bits now some people say nine bits but those nine bits can be clumped so you can make it bigger and bigger, you know, but still not much. But our capacity to memorize bigger items and longer items by doing those kind of tricks is massive. That's, it's not just tricks. It's us inculcating those capacities in our body, in our brain, so we can use it at, at will. For example, the, the number of cards, card decks, yeah. And a person memorized in a row was 56 card decks. Imagine that. So that speaks more to our ability to focus and maintain a visual capacity image. That's remarkable. Inventions are done that way, where yeah. we hold a concept, we 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 hold the concept at a more complex level, and then bring other things, but all of this is done in our mind, almost like a chess player who's playing 16 people blindfolded. That's the level we have that we can actually manipulate with those amazing neurons. So, uh, yeah. So at the same time, our, I, I want to demystify this mind and consciousness thing. But at the same time, I want to bring up to the surface the true capacity of the mind that we have and we can build. When we are talking about, say, for example, the brain's capacity and, and all that sort of stuff, just how much because we've been studying the brain for centuries, I believe, just how much are we yet to figure out regarding the way our brain 
functions, its capacity to to hold things in there, that sort of thing? I don't think we can put a number on that because every time we think we know a lot, suddenly <laughs> we find out more <laughs> and we're humbled. Um, uh, and I, I think that's the most exciting and the most humbling um, aspect of science. Yeah. Uh, one of our favorite statements is, to the best of our knowledge today, we want to preface every statement by saying that. And that's because every day we, we develop new tools to find more about a concept that was already accepted. And so we don't accept anything. It's just an evolving uh, journey of finding more and more. We have uh, found we have found a lot in the last decade, I should say, um, especially with the advent of imaging, with um, genetic studies looking at epigenetics, how the environment affects our gene and how that manifests into health, wellness, or disease. And so um, a lot of exciting things are happening in the near future. We're going to be, you know, looking into how. Um, some of the diseases that were accepted to have no treatment uh, will finally find some treatment for it. And that's not because, you know, scientists kind of stumble upon it, but because we've been able to step back and look at the bigger picture. I yeah. think that's one of the things that is happening in the world of neuroscience, stepping back and looking at the bigger picture rather than, you know, diving deeper and deeper into a concept that was accepted for decades. But I'd seen time i mean that's that's beautifully stated that's exactly right um uh, but at the same time we have this incredible future ahead of us in the next 10 years 15 years the idea of being able to read the human mind yeah. and understand the totality of it understand understanding what a person's mind is made of basically reading the person and and their totality is there and and uh, berkeley university and several others what they've done is while a person is having neurosurgery, the skull is off. They have uh, this multi-lead, 300 plus lead EEG on the surface of the brain. And the person speaks. And the AI device, all, um, artificial, uh, uh, intelligence and machine learning, it actually looks at the patterns of the brain as it's speaking. Mm. So as it's speaking, it's reading the electrical activity over and over and over again. And... So it, it recognizes the pattern of this person's brain that creates that language. And then they ask the person to think of something they just said. And then the person says, and the machine says, the person just thought of, not say it, thought of this. Oh, no, I'm right now. So when I say it that way, you don't understand what I'm saying. But if I say it clearly, you say, oh, my gosh, the machine really did understand. Yeah. I want to go home right now. I want, to go home right, I want to go home right now. So the level of resolution of reading your mind by AI and EEG combined is at that level where it could actually read your mind. And that's remarkable because it's not reading the mind with, with, with greater capacity computers that can actually read multi-layers of thought and past and memory and all of that. You can basically draw the map of a human being. I know this is, again, controversial. I don't care. This is what science is, and if somebody's not happy about it, they can contact Jay. But, <laughs> but, 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 but reality is we're right there. It's beautiful. 
it's kind of scary as well, but it's beautiful that we we could actually understand. For example, somebody's in coma. Mm. My own father went through that, and and we kind of thought maybe that he was awake or not. And so, well, we'll be able to see what the brain is doing at that very moment, and and we're interacting with coma patients. So exciting times, really exciting times. Yeah, this is all fascinating stuff. And I mean, when someone is in a coma, it's always interested me like their where their consciousness actually goes. Like this, they're there, but they're not really there, so to speak. Or is that yes? Right? Yeah, that's, that's right. So, I mean, being a, I've always envisioned like if someone's in a coma, hooking them up to some form of TV, and you can still like communicate with them that way, even though their their, their bodily functions aren't really working, but their mind is certainly, and the mind is repairing itself during that comatose process, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, you know, the mind or, or the brain connecting to your sensory organs and, you know, we use our vocal cords or our body language to communicate. But, you know, being able to understand brain patterns and retrieving information from that is an exciting um, prospect that is not just science fiction anymore. And like Dean said earlier, a lot of great universities and scientists are working on being able to translate that and uh, move forward. You guys are on the forefront when it comes down to research and prevention of Alzheimer's and dementia. My dad's auntie recently passed away with dementia and Alzheimer's. She was going through it for a quite an extensive period of time. And it is really, really nasty seeing someone like lose their ability to like their memories and, and they, they don't remember who you are, so to speak. It's really, really sad to actually watch it happen. But I wanted to ask you with all the technology that is advancing and all the science that is advancing and the more we understand Alzheimer's and dementia, do you think that one day in the future we'll ever be able to find a cure for it, reverse it at all? I'm really sorry to hear about your relative. You know, that's, it's always painful to hear somebody going through that and having had relatives who went through that. We both each had grandparents and it's one of the most painful Mm. things to see. As far as treatment is concerned, yes, there is no doubt that one day we will have treatments for this devastating disease. Um, we're, we're, we're getting closer and closer, even though it's pretty dismal when you look at the clinical trials and currently we don't even have a single agent that can reverse the damage. I mean, there was, you know, this one medication Adekunumab that came up on news that could potentially remove amyloid, um, from the brain. Amyloid is the bad protein associated with Alzheimer's disease, but there were a lot of flaws in the the clinical trials and the outcomes and, you know, it got approved, but right now, as of now, we don't have anything, but I think we have understood the mechanism very well. We now know that it's not based on, you know, some of the end product proteins that have been studied for decades and decades that it's much bigger than that. And we now know that the, the stage at which treatment is applied, the detection of the, 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 particular stage is critically important. So more emphasis on early detection. Um, We've also uh, found that it's not one process that leads to Alzheimer's disease. There are multiple pathways that one can 
um, can take. It could be inflammation, it could be oxidation, it could be glucose dysregulation or lipid or fat dysregulation. And then you have individuals who may have had head traumas or mm -hmm. who, you know, for example, may have abused alcohol throughout their life and just a general unhealthy lifestyle. So there are multiple pathways to that same disease. And just that understanding will help scientists figure out, you know, where, at what point the treatment should be instigated rather than, you know, um, addressing it when there's really nothing left in the brain and there's been a lot of damage done already. Um, so I'm very hopeful and I know that there's been a lot of great work done already. And in the next, I would say five to 10 years, we definitely will have a treatment. Is Alzheimer's and dementia hereditary? Uh, so genetics, involvement of genetics varies for all diseases. I mean, there is no disease that doesn't have a genetic component. I mean, we're yeah. genetic beings. Even our behaviors are, are, are genetically uh, inclined in some way or another. But the degree of influence of genes varies, right? We call that penetrance. So there are diseases that have genes that have 100% penetrance, meaning that if you have that gene, you're going to get the disease. Example of that is Huntington's disease. It's a gene that codes for a codon on chromosome number four. And if somebody has that gene and that, that, that ab abnormality, no matter what they do, they're going to get the disease. That's 100% penetrant gene, a disease. And there are other diseases like that. But for a lot of diseases of aging, it's not 100% penetrance. It's a combination of genes interplaying with lifestyle, with environment, with the food you eat, with, or what kind of food, what kind of movement, what kind of stress, what kind of sleep, what kind of mental activity, what kind of other chemicals that are being inflicted upon you. So it's genes in combination of others. Um, and, the percentage of Alzheimer's, which is a subtype of dementia, dementia is the umbrella category, uh, the percentage of Alzheimer's that is driven by 100% penetrant genes is 3%. The rest of the other 90 to 97% are basically a combination of the influence of genes with environment. Even wow. the second highest penetrant gene, which is APOE4, yes, if you have one gene from one parent, your risk goes up four times. If one, two, one gene from each parent, 12 times. But yet 50% of people with two genes, APOE4 genes, never develop a disease. Why? Lifestyle, environment, things of that nature. So for a lot of diseases of aging, and this is empowering. People should feel good about this. Yeah. For a lot of the diseases of aging, genes have a component, different degrees for different people, but lifestyle and environment has a bigger influence. Good point. Actually, so when we, when we when we are talking about detection, early detection, for someone my age, like I'm 25 at the moment, am I able to test whether or not I would be at risk later on, or is that still too early? So there are some genetic tests that one can do, but I think um, the the gain is minimal and actually yeah. it might be just you know anxiety uh evoking it, one should understand that as we live we're all in a damage control mode so even just normal life uh normal aging can cause some damage wear and tear to our body and assuming that we all carry that risk 
and fixing our lifestyle and environment to give our body and especially the brain an opportunity for it to heal itself and not to suffer from this normal wear and tear and this form this normal wear and tear becoming more of uh, a, a strategic damage. That's the most important thing. So we say, live your life as if you have the risk and don't worry about the kind of genes that you have, because obviously at the end of the day, we don't have any control over it. Yeah. We're not at that stage where we have specific personalized or precision medicine techniques to modify genes or anything of that nature. We should all assume that lifestyle is incredibly important. And those genes that we carry, whether they're the good ones or the bad ones, they essentially do get modified. They do get turned on and off based on our activities, based on the things that we eat, based on the exercises or lack thereof, the stresses that we experience or the sleep patterns that we have. So thinking about it from that angle actually is healthier. Uh, beautifully stated that uh, not to add mm -hmm. to it because there's not much to add, but on no, the please do add. No, on the <laughs> on the positive side of it is our so one is damage control. The other side is res, uh, building capacity. Absolutely. At twenty five, some of the things that we can do is not just build our reserve, which is the bank account that protects us going forward. A twenty five year old is not really that worried about seventy five years of age. No. Maybe you are, but not many people are. So. <laughs> But they are worried about, can I get my optimal brain capacity right now? Mm -hmm. And that's available to everyone. Yeah. And that optimal brain capacity, whether you're in business or in podcasting or whatever it is, is incredibly important. Your focus, your ability to process information quickly, your ability to manipulate language and thought and visual spatial and attention and logic, all of that gives you a tremendous advantage over your others, but, but even forget about others. For yourself and life, which is at a different level of awareness and consciousness than, than your normal state. Yeah. That hyper-aware, hyper-capacitated state is available to everybody. No magical thing, no hacking. I'm, I'm sick of biohack that. <laughs> I mean... It's so silly. It's beyond belief. And it's usually people who don't have any biology background, they're hacking everything. But forget about hacking. But ability to increase focus. I do these exercises where I get a person to try to memorize 20 items. And mm -hmm. they usually don't do, do that well, no matter what the IQ. Then I do a focus exercise, a particular focus exercise, one time only. Imagine if you do that multiple. And then we go through the memorizing activity. Literally the most impressive thing for them in their life has been that. The fact that by just one episode of focusing at, and, and increasing focus, their memory was exponentially improved. That's available to a 25-year-old besides what the benefit you're going to get later. Yeah. But right now. I'm so glad you said that. No, no, no. Because you said it too. A lot of times when, when you say, when you bring up the word or the concept of dementia and Alzheimer's disease, it really doesn't sit very well with people who are not privy to it. Who are those 25-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> those kids out there. Kids. They have no idea. They don't, yeah. I, I sound like those guys. I know. Like those kids nowadays. Yeah. But, but if you if you think about it, because it's something that I personally experience, you know, being um, uh, a mother, uh, being a partner, being, uh, you know, a uh, uh, just a community member, 
when you're sitting in front of someone or when you're um, exposed to a piece of information, mm. you want to be present 100%. You have to, you know, you want to make sure that you not only listen, but you also assimilate that information and contribute to it and make it your own and regurgitate it in a beautiful way. No pressure, Jay. <laughs> None at all. Absolutely not. I love it. So, you know, to be able to do that is a gift. It's you know, beautiful. instead of being all spacey and not really knowing what's going on and forgetful or, or not being engaged, being curious, being energetic. That's what we all want. We, we, we say that consciousness, true consciousness is a wave. And yep. we as humans are basically habit driven beings, meaning that we're below the waves most of the time. We think we're aware, we're conscious, but we're below the wave. And then once in a while, we come to the surface. A lot of times pain brings us to surface. Yeah. Suffering brings us surface. Not that I'm purporting for pushing for suffering. No, that, but I'm saying bluntly, that was the past mechanism. So a lot of times other things bring us to, to the surface or attention, something that was of interest to you brings you to the surface. But to live on the surface above mm -hmm. the wave yeah. and without feeling exhausted, but empowered because this thought builds on this thought, builds on this thought, builds on... I mean, that's the beauty of living in a hyper-aware state. Uh, and I think that would be something that would be incredibly attractive to 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, anybody. You sound like you're aging yourself when you're calling people 20-year-olds. I'm, I'm, I'm in my teens. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't talk about the teens, did I? He's, no, he's, no. Young, he's young in mind, people, and young at heart too. So. Absolutely. It, it all works well. I mean, I, I was sort of more worried about having too many brain farts at my age and, and asking, you know, what's going on there? Should I be worried about early onset Alzheimer's and dementia at my age or trying to fix out, fix the brain farts that I have, which is just, yeah, when I, whenever I'm having like a conversation, sometimes this has happened uh, quite a few times in the past where I've just been mid-thought and then just lost it, like yeah. can't can't bring it back. And I'm like, what it is happens. going on there? Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. that that happens. Uh, I I attribute that to your to your uh, the person you're talking to. So we are gonna take credit. <laughs> I I haven't noticed anything like that right now. So we'll take the credit. I five. Yeah. You're welcome, no, Jay. You're welcome, Jay. You have to be very engaged. <laughs> yeah. No, but but that happens to all of us. Yeah. That happens. Uh, but for multiple reasons, including the fact that you're you're so busy that all these other things start. Uh, seeping through and pulling you to other um, areas of attention. And, and that happens. And, and one of the tools to use is, you know, when people say multitasking, we say there's no such thing as multitasking. It's just doing multiple things badly. <laughs> it yeah. It doesn't mean we don't do multiple things, but if you do them in their own silo with their own, you know, success margins where you actually finish this thing, then go do the next, that actually builds an incredible discipline of a focused mind that can do many, many things, but then their own silos cleanly, completely, beautifully, powerfully. I wanted to ask you, this is more my curiosity uh, in the forefront here. You know, whenever you're driving somewhere and then all of a sudden you get to a location you haven't actually, you weren't set to go in the first place, like you just completely zoned out somewhere. What's actually happened in that moment? Like you've just completely no idea where you've gotten to you're not in the destination that you had originally planned to be in and did you end up in that destination or somewhere else 
I ended up somewhere else, a destination I didn't intend on being on. <laughs> yes, yes. So I don't know if that's ever happened to you guys or what's going on. This, this is a more of a curious question, right? Like, yeah, I know it's it's an yeah. attention thing, right? Yeah. It's it's an attention thing, and we we like I said, we are autopilot autopilot machines. And when people say only forty percent, when people say forty percent of our behavior is habit and autopilot, I say that's wrong. It's more than ninety percent. Wow. Even our thoughts, even our political beliefs after a while, because we put layer upon layer of political beliefs and then we say that's a thought. No, you haven't thought about that, the basis of that thing for a long, long, long time. You just owned it and lived with it and surfed it. Um, so it's it's autopilot and and autopilots take place sometimes. And, and when you're not focusing on the end, this happens because, okay, an example that's familiar to a lot of people in your audience is, you're trying to go to the kitchen and halfway there, you forgot why you were going there. Yes. Happens to me all the time. Or, or you, you go, instead of going to the cabinet, you go to the fridge. It's the same example, right? What it is, is in order to know where you're going at the time when you're planning, you have to be focused enough to put that information in the right file folder or cabinet, metaphorically speaking. Yep. And then you go to that place and then you open that cabinet again and find that, oh, this is where I was going to go. Not that slowly, it happens much faster. But what happens is when you're doing multiple things, podcasts, family, work, that, that, all of this stuff, you're, all of those are noises in the background. Mm -hmm. And you're, when you're trying to plan for the destination, you're not putting the information in the working memory area properly. Mm -hmm. You go there and you try to go to that cabinet, it's nothing there. Yeah. So the key here is building the habit that if I'm going to, it's called the habit of intention. I call it the habit of intention because that habit of intention is not just a nominal thing. It's a very powerful thing. If you build a habit of intention, then what I'm trying to do, I must do it well, not because of the thing, but because of the structures that I'm building in my brain. So if I'm going to go to someplace, I have to really plan it out, put it in my mind, you know, whatever I have to do and then go there. Not because I want to get there. Yeah, of course you want to get there. You don't want to end up, you know, if you're trying to go to your girlfriend's house and then you end up in an old girlfriend's house, that's a bad thing. <laughs> I'm not saying that that's it's your terrible. case. You probably won't come, come back home. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but but if you, but it's the, the, the act of that discipline of building focus so you can put the memory in the right place and then end up, that's critical because that's the highway of habit. That's the highway of cognitive state that you're developing. And that's important. And the girlfriend thing changes from day to day. <laughs> I've been married 17 years. I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, 17, 18. Yeah. yeah. Good. Good to you remember 18 years, not 17. Otherwise, years. you could have gotten in trouble later on. Yeah. We'll fix it later. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I've heard you both speak on Simon's show about the importance of actually writing things down like lists and the importance of like letting your brain rest. And if you wanted to, if you've got a thought at nighttime when you're about to go to sleep, actually write it down and then try and remove all that. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the importance of actually what happens with our brains as we are writing things down on like a piece of paper compared to that of technology? What is the difference? Like we seem to remember more or I remember more when I write things down on paper rather than I do 
with technology. Is there any signs to that? Yeah. Yeah. I guess just the act of writing, um, because it is a particular part of your brain that reads and writes and understands or helps you read, write yeah. and understand. And it's very closely linked to your working memory. So you're essentially reinforcing that system in your brain to uh, assimilate that information and keep it there better than when you are typing. Um, you know, the memory, the, the way memory functions is, is fascinating. So you have, if I have to give an analogy, so you have a small little hallway before you get into the house. That little hallway is your working memory. Yep. That working memory is, you know, the, the place where you kind of just get gather information and everything is being, you know, thrown at you. That working memory then is converted into short-term memory. The short-term memory is maintained if you rehearse it, if you remember it, or if you kind of force yourself to bring it up over and over again. And this short-term memory then becomes long-term memory if you're exposed to it and if you um, basically force yourself to retrieve it and encode it. And there's so many other steps during the day that helps you encode memory too. Your sleep is the most important time to encode memory. Your, uh, you know, activity levels, being physically active helps you encode memory, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, uh, it, there's there's the, these couple of steps that needs to be taken. And it seems that the more sensory organs or the more uh, parts of your brain and your body you use to inform yourself and to absorb information, the better the retrieval mechanism is. Are you more at risk of getting a stroke if you don't have significant amount of sleep every single day? Like even if you are a young person, because I used to work for a lady, she ended up having a stroke, I think in her 40s or something. No, I think it was in her 30s. I could be getting that wrong uh, because she was overly stressed. She didn't sleep at all and she just didn't really have a, a healthy lifestyle so all those contributing factors, you're more at risk, right? But is one more potent than the other? I guess my question is. That's a very good question. So, um, so yes, lack of sleep could be indicative of so many things that are going wrong with somebody's system. Um, could someone directly have a stroke because they're not sleeping well? It could be an indirect relationship. So, for example, if they're not sleeping well, they're probably overly stressed when people are overly stressed that you said you know like you said their cortisol levels yeah. are very high when <clears throat> cortisol level is very high and high for a long period of time your heart rate goes up blood your pressure. blood pressure goes up your arteries spasm and vasoconstrict more than they should you wow. don't have the parasympathetic nervous system activate as much as it should, which is the state of rest and digest and for your body to heal itself. Yeah. Um, not sleeping enough increases the load of all the garbage that is created during the day in our brain and our brain not being able to cleanse it very well. So there's structural and functional damage to the brain. So multiple things can definitely lead to stroke as well. You eat more poorly. And we know that people who don't sleep well, their ability, their satiety centers are affected, the hormones of adrenaline and, and others that, that affect satiety and, and fullness and, and hunger are affected in, in a way where they're eating more, they're eating more unhealthy um, uh, they, and, and at the same time when they sleep less, their oxygenation is affected. Mm. I, I mean, at, at so many different levels 
And what that means ultimately is you have two kinds of strokes, right? You have the hemorrhagic stroke, which is about in the United States and in the West and Australia and other places, about 13% to 15% are 13 hemorrhagic, to 20, where yeah. there's a bleed, mm -hmm. where the artery bursts. And then there is the ischemic where artery closes, either because there's a clot or a spasm or, or closure of the artery because of atherosclerosis. And that's about 80% of all strokes. Yeah. And, and both of those, if your blood pressure is high for a long time, bleeds go higher. If your cortisol is high, same thing. If uh, And then what happens is when the heart rate is beating fast and, the and, and blood pressure is high, the arteries are getting damaged. And then that actually builds up the cholesterol over time. I mean, so many different ways. Sleep by itself is profoundly important. But it's not just sleep. Food is a big factor. Um, uh, I, I would say that the number one factor in our mind is food, um, exercise, and then sleep are three three important factors. Food is incredibly important, yes, because it directly and indirectly increases yeah. the risk of stroke. And there's been studies that have looked at global outcomes of strokes and you know relationship with uh, with nutrition. And nutrition is something that affects the uh, risk factors for stroke too. It affects blood pressure, cholesterol, sugar metabolism or diabetes, uh, metabolic syndrome or obesity and things of that nature too. I want to get on diet in just a moment. My grandfather actually, uh, I told you guys before we officially started recording this, he passed yeah. away from a, he had two brainstem strokes. The first one, he ended up surviving. He was a tough son of a gun. And uh, then what actually killed him was he ended up in a nursing home and then he had a second brainstem stroke, which gave him eternal peace, which we're grateful for. Uh, what goes on with a brainstem stroke and why are they so deadly in the first place? Is it more the the 80% that you were talking about, the constriction, or was it a burst? Brainstem strokes are deadly. You're absolutely right, and I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah about your your grandfather and so the brain stem is the part of the brain that is in between the the cerebral cortex and the brain proper and the spinal cord it's right in between so if you can imagine all of the connections from our brain cells being squished into that tiny little area mm -hmm. so every small you know speck of brain stem represents a whole lot of the brain and as an extension, our body. So if even if someone has a very tiny brainstem strokes and you know, because it's a small place, only a tiny stroke can actually cause a lot of damage in the brain in the body. So for example, a tiny little speck can cause paralysis of the entire half of the body. Yeah. Or it can cause, you know, sensory loss on one side of the face, say for example, loss of vision, loss of hearing, loss of taste, loss of sensation in the face, and then movement on the opposite side of the of the body. And there are multiple different brainstem stroke syndromes and they've been named after scientists and doctors who've actually revealed them and have talked about them. And it all depends on which part of the brainstem is affected, whether it's in the pons, the medulla, or the brainstem proper. So, you know, all of these sections um, can get affected by it. The, the arteries in the brainstem are, are very tenuous. Um, when, when you look at the anatomy, there is a very large 
artery that goes in the middle. And then there are these smaller arteries that come off at right angle from them. And if someone has some vascular risk factors for a long period of time that affects the inner lining of the arteries that hardens them or that causes inflammation at the junction of these arteries, it can collapse on itself or it can actually create clots or sometimes it even creates aneurysm, which is an outpouching of an arterial wall because of thinning of, of that wall. So there are multiple different reasons to have a stroke in the brainstem, but it is one of the most common places for people to have a stroke because of that weird anatomy of the arteries. And for these, the anatomy not really, you know, being beneficial when somebody has, say, for example, long-term high blood pressure or cholesterol that causes damage to the inner linings of the arteries. Is um I'm probably getting this wrong, but Bell Bell's palsy, where I think one side of the face goes numb, is that it? Am I- oh yeah, Bell's palsy. Yes. Yeah. So Bell's palsy is not a, no, stroke. Not a stroke. It's a it's a neurological condition where there is infection or inflammation of a nerve, the facial nerve, ah. um, and that that infection or inflammation or reactivation of some viruses that live in the ganglia, which is like you know a part of our uh, peripheral nervous system, they get activated and people actually have paralysis of the muscles that are supplied by that nerve. And in fact, one way we know that it's not a paralysis and it's Bell's palsy is if both the upper side of the face and the lower are paralyzed, then we say it's Bell's. And if it's just the lower part, then it's a stroke. Right. Uh, it, it's, um, yeah, but, but Bell's is not a, a, a stroke so phenomenon. With clinical examination, you can differentiate between whether it's a stroke or a Bell's palsy. And if it is Bell's palsy, that sort of fixes itself over time? Most of the time it can fix itself. It depends on whether it is caught early or not. Sometimes when people catch it early and they start an antiviral therapy, um, some people actually even start taking some steroids, that can fix the inflammation and can result in better outcomes. But there are times when people don't treat it. Or for example, if the infection or the inflammation is very, um, you know, uh, intense, um, they're left with some deficits for the rest of their life, which is pretty sad. I've I've known two two of my friends uh, that have had Bell's palsy and both have recovered, but it took them quite some time yeah. to actually recover from it. But yeah, I just wanted to and and uh, and uh, Justin Bieber, the the singer, yeah. the oh. Canadian, he just had was diagnosed with Bell's palsy. Well, right? I haven't followed that story, but they said there was Ramsey Hunt syndrome. Oh, was it okay? Or versus Bell's palsy. So we're not quite sure what it was, but um, yeah, I haven't really followed. I, I don't follow him on Instagram, so I don't yeah, know. I, I but don't. all my best wishes to him. Me either. So you, you're ahead of me there on, on that one, Dean. Yes, <laughs> I, I keep up with the social social media. <laughs> <laughs> you're more you're more advanced in that that yeah. field than I am. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I wanted to ask you both about diet. You've got this book out, uh, 30 Day Alzheimer's Solution. Uh, you also are very prominent with plant based nutrition, which I'm probably like 60 percent there. <laughs> I'm getting there. Promise. It's, it's, it's on a my journey. Way. For everybody, it's a journey. And I've got Simon's book there to help me out yeah. too. Yes. Um, yes. So brilliant. brilliant book, uh, which goes very, very well with your book too. Uh, I just wanted to see 
regarding the kind of foods that we should be eating every single day, how much plant food predominantly should we be eating to re-energize our brain function to keep it healthy and safe and to keep our focus and attention on point uh, and what foods in particular? Yeah. So for we always say this, I mean, we're plant-based for multiple reasons and we're, there's, we're very transparent from the environment to animals, to, to health. There's the, the data on health. I know there are some talking heads out there that say this and that, but the data Globally, if we looked at, we looked at the largest studies in the in the world. We were in charge. We were we looked at California teacher study, one hundred thirty three thousand. We were doing research in uh, Adventist Health study and many others. The the dominant issue is plants, plants, plants. But your journey should be your journey. It's critical that we work around habits and not around edicts. Yeah. This is not an edict driven world. It's a mind driven world, which. Uh, should be a systematic way around your strengths, your proclivities, your tendencies, your resources. And, and, and in doing so, then we empower people instead of judge people, instead of push people. We should, we should, we should definitely help people achieve. And without the feeling of, of um, um, what is it, uh, absence or um, deprivation, deprivation. Yeah. instead of deprivation, they should feel a sense of gain. So forget about what you should get rid of at first. How about adding two big heaping servings of greens a day. Yeah. This, the data there is just crazy. For all these biohackers, if they just focused on greens, <laughs> now look at this data from several studies. If you just add two servings of greens in your diet, you increase your life expectancy and quality by 11 years. Mm-hmm. If I could just stop there, forget about plant-based keto, paleo, forget about all those battles. Those are for little kids' battles. No, it's just add two servings of greens. And by just doing so, you've significantly reduced your chances of stroke, dementia, quality of life, and everything else. And in, in doing so, also, you empower yourself. Because empowerment is about ability to do something, ability to repeat doing something, until you've checked off that dopamine box over and over again several times where it becomes a drive, that drives becomes behavior, that behavior becomes culture, that becomes your very being without a contrived New Year resolution. Yeah. A fake, forced, judgmental resolution. Just two greens. There it is. Our podcast is done right there if we have to. If, if, if everybody in your podcast community just added two servings of greens, that would be a revolution. Yeah. But then if you want to get, add more, yeah, more vegetables, more legumes, nor, more beans. Don't listen to people who are creating these weird things like lectins are poison because it's a cool little thing, right? Oh, we heard, oh, really? There's a lectin and tomatoes are poison? Tomatoes are not poison. Beans are not only not poison. In fact, the one food that's been found consistently as the healthiest food in the healthiest places, beans. Mm. Just because some 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 guy brought up the term lectins and 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 used the concept of paradox, it doesn't mean it's real. There is no reality, no truth, no validation, no data to that as far as population base or even at the individual level. So greens, beans, add those. Don't worry about what you can eliminate. If you do choose to. 
lower saturated fat. Saturated fat is poison, whether you find it in meat, cheese, butter, but even there, do one thing at a time in a measurable, achievable way. And also in a systematic way where it becomes part of your life, not a diet, not a program, but yeah. part of your life. If you're going to eliminate sugar, not carbs, carbs are phenomenal. Complex carbs are phenomenal. Clean, complex carbs are phenomenal. But sugar or processed carbs, yes, they're poison. Processed food, yes, poison. But saturated food, poison. If you're going to add any oil, poly and monounsaturated fats in olive oil, but even yeah. there in small amounts. So there are really simple, tangible changes, but in a measurable way that you can change your life. But get rid of two words. And Simon has heard me say this multiple times, and your audience, some of you might have heard. Get rid of the word motivation yeah. because it has no meaning. Because if you can't operationalize a word, if it doesn't have a denominator, if it doesn't have a lever, if it doesn't have a measurement, if it doesn't have a tool to change it, it is not only not empowering, it's disempowering. The only thing that word is making, the only person that's making rich is Tony Robbins. <laughs> and that's basically it. So throw away a motivation. Instead of it, create measurable, attainable goals, clear goals, measurable goals, and systematize it in your life. And do one thing at a time. Yeah. One, greens, start with greens. On exercise, morning walk, 10 minutes. That's it. I'm not worried about the exercise. I'm worried about the habit. Build that into your daily routine. A morning walk, melatonin, cortisol, metabolism, mood alteration, everything is affected. Those are meaningful, tangible things. So that's where I would start instead of some new diet or some new program, but uh, uh, systematized, meaningful things. Dean was on fire there. Yeah. <laughs> Mic sure. drop. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that I have what they call, what I call actually the freedom diet. I mean, it's predominantly focused in eating healthy, nutrient-rich foods as best I possibly can with the the added benefit of me choosing to eat other foods that I want to eat, not consistently, but give myself a treat every now and then because, you know, I, I'm here on this earth for a short period of time. God willing, and I want to enjoy it as much as possible. And food is part of it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I I don't necessarily subscribe to one particular diet. Although, like I said, I'm sixty percent. The majority of foods that I eat would be considered plant based, which I did that more recently. In the of changing it to to suit my lifestyle and and all that sort of stuff, I exercise regularly. And one of the things that sort of confirmed. I started doing this recently, actually, and I've noticed a significant benefit to it as well. And I was listening to your episode with Simon this morning as well, and it confirmed it once again was eating oats at night. And um, I was like, huh, th this is fascinating. It was sort of confirming my, my theory about feeling better and being able to fall asleep a little bit easier at nighttime. And because I go to bed at like, seven, seven thirty at night and I wake up at four in the morning. Wow. I notice that I'm just like out like a light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right away. More than what I was before. Um and I yeah, so if if those people want to know about the oats, what's in oats and what other foods can help them sleep a bit better before I ask you guys a final couple of questions. Yeah. Um I think um 
I think more than focusing on what kind of foods help us sleep better, the 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 question should be, you know, what is the relationship of food and sleep? So so we know that as we grow older, our body needs some time to rest before we hit the deeper stages of sleep. Um, and there are certain foods that when we consume them, our body just revs up and it starts metabolizing, you know, all these different components. And it seems that foods that are high in protein or in fat, uh, whether even if it's good fats, um, our pancreas and our gallbladder and our GI system has to produce a lot of enzymes and acids and bases to break them down for the body to be able to absorb it. And it's not a very good idea to subject your body to so much work right before hitting, you know, um, hitting your bed. Um, so we always say try not to eat uh, too close to bedtime, but if you do eat if you want to eat something, make sure they're made out of complex carbohydrates because they're like the, the softest, the easiest thing to digest. And your body doesn't get revved up because the sugars don't get absorbed right away into your circulation. And you're not hungry. You're not uncomfortable. And so oats, oats or oatmeal is one of them. You know, the fiber and the beta glycan and the, the complex carbohydrates, they make them almost a perfect food, which, you know, just, it's like a hug for your inside and for your body to get the energy, but not to get revved up and it doesn't affect your sleep. So, you know, what, what else is in that category? Bananas are one of them. Um, and anything that is kind of starchy and has complex carbohydrates seems to be the good ones. The bad things, obviously, I don't think that's even a discussion is coffee, which has, you know, a half-life of eight hours and it lingers in your system. Um, spices, citrus, fatty foods, high protein foods, high sugar. You uh, obviously high sugar foods. You know, foods that are made of refined carbohydrates may not be a good idea right before bedtime. I feel like I can talk to you both for hours. I mean, there's so much more to unpack, but I wanted to be respectful of your time. Where can people find you and connect with you and learn more about your work before I ask you the final question? Hi, we feel the same, Jay. This was a fun conversation. Thank you yeah. for having us. We are the Brain Docs, the Brain Docs uh, on Instagram, on Facebook, and uh, our website is thebraindocs.com. And um, we're uh, we're very active in the community. Um, one of the things that Dean and I are very passionate about is the translation of all this phenomenal information that we have about brain health. We don't want it to be lost in the echo chambers of scientific conferences anymore. So we work in the communities and we have a not-for-profit called the Healthy Minds Initiative. And through that, we essentially disseminate information to different communities. One of our- For free. For free, wow. one of our projects that is near and dear to our heart is our project at the um, African American churches in um, South LA, Los Angeles, mm. where we're training trainers to uh, essentially be brain health ambassadors in their communities and talk about better brain health, but also about prevention of de devastating diseases like stroke, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, and and others. And we're willing to come to any community, Australia, anywhere. Uh, go to Healthy Minds uh, Initiative, healthyminds.initiative.org, and that's our passion to promulgate and spread the message of hope and and health 
into different communities. We also have a thriving online community called the Neuro Academy, neuroacademy.com, where you know it's an online environment where people actually are exposed to information about brain health, and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful community living together. Vibrant. In other words, you guys are not hard to find at all. <laughs> so, I don't think so. No, I don't, I don't think, think so. so. Yeah. 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 I mean, I found you guys pretty easy. So, and I found you guys really, really interesting. So, there's so much that I learned today. And I'm going to message Simon later on and say, mate, part seven or eight. <laughs> Come on. Um, he, he can do it. But this is my final question for you both. It is a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've both been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you. These will be individual films of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you each on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Who wants to go first? Um, I'll go first. Go. I want people to see that a husband and wife, as friends, who lived fearlessly, scientifically, proactively, productively, and in doing so changed the world for the better. And um, that's, I think... Uh, what we would I would I would want us to be seen as as a new model a complete new paradigm of existence of hoping that sounds a little bombastic I'll pull it back a little yeah of fearless living hoping to bring change across all races all genders all all species um, uh, you know looking at the world in a different set of eyes and a more Grand, loving eyes, um, because we can. Um, I hope that that's uh, that's the story. Darn it! I will never let you go first anymore. Okay? <laughs> no, you're gonna always do so better. <laughs> difficult to talk after you. No, no. My God, that was great. Um, I don't think I can say it better. But yes, um, the one thing that Dean and I always take pride in, and I love him to to death. And you know, we've been together for almost 19 years, and we've been doing this together. And I've been so lucky to have you know such a great partner. We're best friends, and we work together. Um, for people to know that we have taken a lot of risks, fearless risks, and um, the uh, the the outcome was just massive. And um, that's the only way to live, fearless living, to be, to do the things that were not considered cool, but then they will be considered cool later on yeah. as well. Yeah, um, but there are the right things to do. The, it, exactly. They're the right things to do to stand for something that um, uh, needed uh, our energy and our voice. So I'm, I'm glad to have done that with you. You two are amazing. Thank you both so much for your time today, your wisdom, your advice, and your stories. Obviously, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Much thank love you so to much. you, Jay. Thank you for everything that you're doing. This is wonderful. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, 
motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.